Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a part of the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I am here today with uh, two people, Stephen Hardy, a retired professor of kinesiology and affiliate professor of history at the University of New Hampshire, and Andrew Holman, a professor of history and the director of Canadian studies at Bridgewater State University. And we're here today to talk about their book, uh, a really fine book, especially if you're a fan of hockey. Their, their news book, it's called Hockey, A Global History. It's out from University of Illinois Press in 2018. Uh, thank you, Steve and Andy, for joining me. Thanks for having thank us. Thanks very much. Uh, so I wanted to start out by asking you all how you developed this project. How did you decide to write a book with hockey and, and why did you decide to work together to write this book? Well, it's a long saga, uh, Keith. Uh, I think what what is important for us is that we both played the game and, and coached the game. So we had a, an interest, a, a very deep interest in hockey uh, as a sport and as a phenomenon. Uh, but as to the book, um, it got its beginnings 1991 when the University of Illinois Press asked me to write a short volume on the history of ice hockey. And it was part of a series that they envisioned uh, from across a range of sports. But but their their notion was couched on the assumption that there would be a good amount of scholarly literature out there. And that, that was okay with baseball and the Olympics, but for many sports, there just wasn't a lot of scholarly literature in 1991. So I convinced them this would require uh, more time and more primary source research, and they were very patient. Um, so I began on this this journey with some visits to archives, and, and then we had some family tragedy. My oldest boy uh, battled brain cancer and died in 93, and that threw it off. And then I got back on to it slowly. And um, as I got around 2000, I realized for a variety of reasons, I needed help. And around that time at the University of New Hampshire, we had begun the something called the Charles Holt Archives of American hockey in memory of a legendary coach at UNH, a Hall of Fame coach. And Andy took a take came up and Andy and I had met each other at several early hockey conferences, international hockey conferences. So Andy came up and and I asked him if he wanted to join me and I knew he was just the right guy. And thankfully he said yes. And that that's when we really started to to make some progress. Uh, and then as we were a third of the way through the manuscript and then my oldest, my youngest son was killed in action and that threw it off. And, and then slowly we, we got back onto it and, uh, and finally got the, the manuscript done, but it, 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 without Andy, there's no book. Well, uh, I'm flattered to hear you say that Steve, but, uh, the truth is that you've been the, uh, the heart and soul of this book right from the start. I was thrilled to be invited by you to come on. Uh, I guess it was in the early 2000s by this stage when uh, our paths crossed at a conference in Halifax and I was presenting something on hockey in the borderlands and Canada-US borderlands culture. Uh, And we happened to be on the same panel. And uh, as often happens at these things, um, the, uh, you know, we, we, we hit it off and, uh, had some ideas in common. And so it wasn't too long after that, I think, as I recall, that you asked me if I'd come on and do this. And I was blown away. I thought, wow, the chance to work with you and the chance to uh, produce something that promised to be uh, a comprehensive scholarly history of hockey was really, uh, really great. Now, I don't think either of us anticipated that it was going to take as long as it did to finish it. But in many ways, I'm glad it did take it as long as... uh, as it did, uh, because I think it gave us a chance to really mull over some of the problems, some of the historiography, some of the uh, source problems that that have faced scholars in the past. And of course, in the meantime, you know, this field that we now can call hockey studies has become so robust that uh, we can lean on some other literature as well. So a long time in the making, 
but to, certainly from my perspective, no regrets as to how it came about and, and the, the length of time that it's taken to finish. You both have discussed how this is a comprehensive history. And I, I have to admit, I, I saw the book. I thought, oh, this would be a good fit for the, for the New Books Network. Um, and when I'd arrived, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a big book. <laughs> <laughs> it, you call it a global history. But then in your introduction, you, you sketch out that, in fact, it would be really impossible to include the whole history of hockey in one book. You make inclusions. You make exclusions. Uh, at some point, um, discussing this as a very Canadian game and then, of course, expanding and illustrating how it really is a global game. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you decided to include, what you decided to exclude. Was there anything you really wanted to include that didn't fit uh, and, and how you shaped this this story from a kind of Canadian game into the global game that it that it is today? Uh, well, that's a really good question, Keith. Um, I think that, as Andy suggested, as we as we dug into both the secondary literature and, more important, the, the primary material we were able to uncover, um, that more or less shaped our story. Now, as we say, um, we are more dependent on on secondary literature as we move outside of North America. Um, so number one, I, nobody had really tried to do a, even a North American history of hockey. It was mostly Canadian, very little on America. And so number one, we've tried to show the interactions between America and Canada and the development of the game. And then as we looked at Europe, uh, there had been more material coming out of Sweden, some good material on, on Russia, uh, some on Czechoslovakia, Finland. Uh, Total Hockey was a wonderful reference that helped us in many ways. So, uh, and then other books filled in, but as, as the reader can quickly see, there are certain countries uh, in, in Europe that come to the forefront. So, so certainly uh, early on, it's, it's Swiss, Switzerland, Germany, France, uh, Czechoslovakia or Bohemia then. And then as we move through the 20th century, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Finland, and then the Soviet Union into Russia. Uh, so the, it, to say it's global, I think it fits the definitions of global in that we're, we're not looking at one country and more important, we're, we're looking at interactions between countries and cultures. And that, we feel, is what makes it global. If I can just uh, jump in here, I'd say that, you know, one of the great challenges that uh, world historians and global historians have, uh, and sport historians too, is this whole question about periodization. Historians use it so, you know, it's integral to what we do as uh, a profession, and yet we probably don't give it as much thought uh, as we should. Uh, and what Steve and I did, I think, fairly early on was to think big picture about periodization and how do we go about periodizing this phenomenon that hadn't been looked at before. As Steve suggests, what had been written about hockey, even in a quasi-scholarly way, had been principally about elite hockey, big league hockey, the NHL. Uh, and that provides a certain kind of a periodization, but it really didn't capture what what we wanted to get at. And so I'm trying to put together some kind of a schema uh, that understands the ebbs and flows of hockey uh, from the time of its founding in uh, Montreal as a as a rule bound indoor game until the present day was was the big question for us. Uh, and we managed to do that. We managed to come up with four different periods of uh, of discussion, and I think the the evidence that we come we've used we come you know you sort of uh, go from the particular to the general and back to the particular to make sure that you've got the right uh, period markers. I think it works. Uh, Steve will probably want to talk more to to the uh, the periodization aspect, but that was always in our minds. I think right from the forefront is how do we how do we make sure that we get it right in terms of uh, periodization. Can, can I uh, interject before you jump in, Steve? Because I actually have a question about this. I'm sorry. Um, 
I thought that that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book is how you develop this periodization and then work it through this metaphor, this motif of convergence and divergence, and then always telescoping from the big to the little, back to the big to the little again. Um, so I wonder, Steve, can you tell me a little bit about how you guys developed that particular periodization? When did you come to the conclusion that this is really a story about convergence and divergence and these these kind of twin tensions? Another another great question, Keith. Um, the convergence divergence seemed to pop up uh, very nicely as we grappled with uh, periodization. And Andy and I presented a paper at a conference in Moncton in 2006, I believe it was. And as we were preparing for that, we decided that if if at all possible, uh, if we could find uh, breakpoints for the periodization that were not that were not driven by uh, out events outside of the sports world, so to speak. And typically you see the, for American sport history, it's the civil war. Take my dissertation and, and first book, 1865 uh, to 1915 uh, dates that really had nothing to do with, with the world of sports uh, they were external on top of sports. And Andy and I wondered, gee, can we find some dates that really work within the flow of sports as part of the larger picture? And and we, we grappled with that. And then finally, um, as we began to think about convergence and divergence, it, it really struck us what these dates would be. 1875, 1920, uh, the the Antwerp Olympics, and then 1972, and 72, as we grappled with that, it, it was striking to us what a year that was in sports, not just hockey, but it had tremendous impact on on the history of hockey on a number of fronts. So, it, the convergence, divergence, convergence worked very nicely as we thought about what dates to use for periodization. Let's maybe work through um, your periods then. The first part of your book is um, before 1875, as you suggest. Um, and I guess uh, to ask a controversial question right out the bat, what are hockey's origins? Where's its birthplace? Is it Montreal, Victoria Park? Who gets to claim hockey? Well, that's a great question. Um, and hopefully that's a question that never gets fully answered. Uh, we're, uh, we're giving our version of it. It's uh, based on the evidence that we've read and, you know, really kind of leaned on the work uh, of some others. But uh, our, our defining point was really that uh, when, uh, when is it that we could trace an undisturbed lineage uh, from the present day back uh, to a particular version of the game? And that leads us back to the 4th of March, 1875, in the Victoria Skating Rink in Montreal, as it does for a good many other uh, hockey followers and historians and uh, others. Uh, yeah, you know, there are other claims. There's Kingston, there's Halifax, there's Windsor. Uh, there's even a place in the Northwest Territories that claims to have um, the origins of hockey. But, but for us, uh, looking at a game that was rule-bound, that was... Uh, indoor that was uh, something that had this kind of direct uh, a line of advance is something that we could place to Montreal. Um, I, th I think, you know, if you look at what happens after Montreal, 4th of March, 1875, you can see that it's really in that vein, in that game that was played there amongst those Montreal Anglophone uh, bourgeois folks that, uh, that our game of hockey today is, has got its, its principal root anyway. And at the same time, Keith, we're pretty clear that those, those Montrealers, those uh, well-to-do Montrealers uh, did not invent the game so much as they were grabbing uh, aspects of games that were swirling around at that time and uh, written, written rules 
for field hockey had come out of, of England. But we don't believe, when we say invent, we're not saying it was some uh, total invention. They, they There was lots going on around them. And this ample evidence uh, that historians have found of, of hockey-like games all around the world. And we hope we try to cover a lot of that. But as Andy says, that if we're talking about the game we now call hockey, uh, Stanley Cup, Olympic, whatever it is, that can be traced to Montreal in, in 1875. And I think one of the things that your book does, Andy and Steve, is it really shows why this one particular version, as you say, a kind of rule-bound indoor version of, of hockey really um, expands why, why, it, why other types of games converge towards it and not the other way around. You, you lay out some preconditions for the game's expansion, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about why Montreal um, hockey, this Anglophone hockey, uh, succeeds where games like bandy or other lacrosse type or field hockey type games didn't succeed. Right. No, I, th- I think that's, uh, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, there's no, there's no inevitability that this version of the game is going to be the one, but there are some demonstrable reasons why it does become the one. Uh, some of them by, uh, you know, sheer luck, some of them by, uh, circumstance. Montreal just so happened to have uh, a a growing industrial city with a a rising uh, white collar middle class uh, that had increasing, you know, uh, amounts of uh, leisure time and money to spend it. Uh, And of course, this push to make uh, Montreal the kind of winter capital of North America. And we see this happen in the, the years of the 1880s with the establishment of the Montreal Winter Carnival. And Though by no means hockey is uh, the, uh, the, the main attraction among carnival goers, it's important that it's there and it's on display, not just to other Montrealers, but to other Canadians who come into the city for that festival and to Americans and, and others from around the world who come to see it as well. And so it has this kind of stage from which you can make a, uh, an important point of departure uh, it has a, a market and an audience to pitch to, and it, it connects. Uh, so much so that in the very last year of the Montreal Winter Carnival, one of the people who sees it is the Governor General of Canada, Lord Stanley, who is so enthralled with the game, its action, its spirit, its kind of capturing of winter as a Canadian thing, that um, he decides that he's going to donate uh, a cup for the the Dominion's uh, Amateur Championship, and that comes about uh, by 1893. So Montreal doesn't happen by uh, just by by pure luck, although there is some luck involved in it. There are the conditions, the winning conditions, are in place for it to take root there. And of course, uh, you know, in the in the two decades following 1875, uh, certainly in the decade after 1885. Uh, it grows across the country, so much so that in all the places that can sustain ice for any lengthy period of time in Canada, it becomes played. Every little railway hamlet, every little mining town, uh, or virtually every little mining town has a hockey team. Uh, and uh, and for as much of the winter as the, 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 you know, the conditions, the climate will allow, there's competition that takes place. They, there's you know, Canadian visitors who... Uh, or visitors to Canada who by the late 19th century are remarking on how this Canadian product has taken off like wildfire fire in such a short period of time. It's really, it's really quite remarkable. And of course, you know, the Canadian border with the United States is, has always been porous and leaky and, and it finds its way fairly quickly by 1889 into Vermont and by the 1890s into places like Baltimore and uh, into uh, Boston uh, and so uh, it's not long before Canada's game becomes uh, a budding uh, Canada's gift to the world. And also, uh, Keith, um, the the Montreal group that became the uh, Amateur Hockey Association of Canada, whose rules began to move out 
into the U.S. and across the Atlantic and even across the Pacific. Um, they had elected to create a game or to fashion a game with no, what we might call no forward passing or very limited uh, forward passing so that the puck might go forward, but the person who received the puck had could not be ahead of the puck when it was passed. And paradoxically, that aspect of the game seemed to be more scientific. It certainly more made a more scientific or thoughtful game than than either bandy or polo, which essentially were games like uh, field hockey, whacking the ball with one hand, one hand rather than two, uh, with much more what we would call forward passing, uh, certainly in the offensive half of the of the rink. Um, and so the game that in some ways seemed to be slower than polo or bandy was more attractive because people interested in sports at the time were very interested in, in scientific aspects. And hockey therefore appeared as more scientific as it, as it came to rival and appeared in rivalry with either polo in the U.S. or England or bandy in England or on the European continent. And so what to us would, would seem to be a slower game was more appealing. So some of these choices that the Montrealers made early made all the difference. And then in terms of, of perhaps luck, but also perhaps hard work, and we don't have, we don't have all the details yet, but the Antwerp Olympics, as we suggest, are an important moment when the game becomes international. So the Antwerp Olympics in, include hockey, Montreal, we call it Montreal hockey. Uh, why? Because there was a lobby of, of hockey people in Europe at the time who were able to convince the local um the local committee in Antwerp, as well as the International Olympic Committee, to have an exhibition of this game of hockey, this essentially Canadian game. But bandy was popular on the continent. And so had it not been for this group of, of lobbyists, and we don't know all the details, but certainly it's clear they had an impact. It, as we say in the book, it's it's possible that that we might have in the case of of this hockey or a hockey-like game, um, an Olympic game that's quite different from the popular professional game in North America, which is what we have in, in, in say, football. Um, but it didn't happen because there were people on the ground who had already been converted to Montreal hockey and were able to convert others. And when Teams from Sweden and Czechoslovakia appeared and saw this game played by the Canadians and the Americans at a high level of skill. That was it. They were sold. And case closed. That was a very important moment. Some of it luck, some of it lobbying. So we see, I mean, in that in that second part of your book, so between roughly 1875 to 1820, a, a convergence. And, and I think, Steve, you've just really shown us how it happens um, that the game becomes popularized in, in Europe. I do wonder um, if you all could talk a little bit about how that expansion happens uh, in the rest of Canada and in North America, where the factors that explain the growth of hockey in, in North America, the same as they were in Montreal is, as is expanding. Is it, is it uh, still a kind of bourgeois uh, game or, or are there other things at play? That's a great question. And initially, uh, it is. Social class, of course, is one of the uh, vectors, as we call it in the book, that uh, helps to spread the game. So, you know, like-minded uh, uh, students or classmates, former classmates who travel to Winnipeg or travel to, to Toronto or to other places, uh, bring their pastimes with them. And, uh you can almost trace it through other members of this Anglophone bourgeoisie who spent some time in Montreal or at McGill or on one of the uh, hockey teams there, 
who take the game physically with them uh, and their knowledge of the rules and their knowledge of its rhythm uh, to other parts of Canada. Um, what's also true is, you know, in terms of the, uh, the physical means is the railway. And uh, the railway has been a part of a sort of icon in Canadian history. Uh, you can count two or three other things like the Mounties or whatever, but the railway certainly uh, is there. Uh, and it was uh, a connector of uh, towns, of people at a time when there was very little to hold Canada together from coast to coast. And so it's no surprise then that you see along the little railway stops across Canada to places like Saskatchewan and what becomes Alberta uh, and to British Columbia, uh, the, the game of hockey is following that, that means of transport as well. Uh, it doesn't hurt either that, uh, you know, a few key journalists and writers, that some of these people who had played the game in Montreal and were enthusiasts of it were also pretty good with a pen too and could could put together articles that were published in national magazines that could spread the game to those people who hadn't experienced before and perhaps were curious. So it gets it gets spread initially in those ways. Initially, um, it is very much uh, uh, preached as a gentleman's game, that this is a, like other bourgeois sports, uh, an amateur game, and that it should never, ever, uh, according to its first uh, articulators, uh, become anything more than merely something to pursue for the sake of fun, for the sake of uh, uh, of gentlemanly uh, spirit and uh, the exchange of friendship. But that's really too big an ask. And uh, by the time the late 1890s come about, by the time the game has spread into you know, mining and mill towns, uh, where it's played by working class Canadians and others, we begin to see that uh, the gentlemanly spirit is uh, bent, if not broken, uh, and that there, uh, other Canadians have different uses of the game as well, uh, some for profit uh, and some for, um, for their own uh, uh, versions of, uh, of what uh, you know, a community identity would be about. So there is a transformation that's taking place. Even as the game is being spread geographically, there's also a transformation in its character and its original uh, gentlemanly construct uh, is called into question for sure. And as we also show, Keith, uh, technology plays a, a very important role in terms of, of artificial ice developments in making artificial ice, particularly the mid-1890s, and that that enables um, games indoors and indoor skating to be more reliable in, in the United States and also in much of Europe, uh, where, where the game catches on. Uh, without, without the artificial ice capacity and indoor rinks, you, can't, you cannot have this game. Uh, you cannot have reliable ice. You cannot have leagues. You can't have ways to to bring the revenues in to pay for the technology. And at the same time, uh, the technology is represented in equipment manufacturers like the Spalding Company, that is an international an international conglomerate by by the eighteen nineties. Uh, so a number of factors help to to spread this game. Throughout the first two parts of your all's book, I was really struck by how you continually um, illustrate these kind of tensions and contradictions in hockey. It's both modern and folk. It has freedom and constraint. It's bourgeois and working class. It's amateur and pro. It's commercial and then communal or didactic. Um, and it seemed to me like those things were really allowing hockey to spread at the, at the beginning of the book uh, in, in section two, because people could make of hockey what they wanted. But then in part three, after Antwerp, we see a divergence along some of the same lines. So why does it work towards convergence um, at first and then later towards divergence? Why do we have this kind of rupture in this converging narrative that I think we see in a lot of sports histories, but yours is more nuanced. So I really appreciated that. Well, I think simply put, um, the the same 
the same reasons that that attracted people to this game also made them want to make it their own. So there you go from convergence, embracing something that comes from somewhere else, but then making it our own game, whether that's European, whether that's International Olympic, whether that's American collegiate, it, it was no longer going to be just Canadian. It was no longer going to be Amateur Hockey Association of Canada. So it begins to splinter along these these lines of community, if you will, um, bonding. It's a way of bonding communities, to use Putnam's notion here. Uh, but those bonds begin to separate. So American collegians want their own version of the game. Europeans want their own version of the game. Within Europe, uh, the Swedes begin to have their sense of a game versus the Czechs versus ultimately uh, the Soviets. Uh, so the game begins to diverge along those lines. And in some ways, for me anyway, this was the most fascinating part of our book. And as you say, uh, we learned a lot from some histories of what we call world football. We could see the same general pattern of divergence. Um, and that that made us feel good. I think that our use of the terms is, is our own, but you can see the same type of narrative. But we were able to dig in on rules differences and, and some of the controversies that emerged during this period that represented people's desires to make the game their own. Yeah, and I would add to that that, you know, as with every uh, exercise in periodization that, uh, uh, you know, you might pick one date in particular, but a phenomenon uh, that is going to change significantly may well have begun to change before that date, say 1920 or whatever date. Uh, and so there are inklings of change, of divergence that, that take place before 1920, but in the period after 1920, we see that it, it really began to happen in great strength in a variety of different ways. And I would add to what Steve has said, that there's a, an interesting kind of uh, demographic divergence that happens in the 20s, 30s, uh, where not only uh, you know our American collegians and others wanting to have their own game, but the whole construction, social construction of hockey as being a white game. Uh, or being a male game is being uh, called into question as well. Perhaps not uh, overwhelmingly successfully at first, but with uh, an appreciable degree of strength and something that's worth documenting and and showing to be part of this bigger this bigger phenomenon of divergence that happens after 1920. Yeah, I, I was particularly interested in in that section uh, of um, Native American interventions into hockey and particularly the Ojibwe um, team that had kind of traveled around. What, where did you guys, how did you discover that? Where did you find out about that? That was really interesting. Uh, that's a great story. I, uh, I stumbled across it uh, in a collection of photos in the city of Toronto archives. Uh, this picture of these uh, native hockey players who were dressed up like Hollywood natives uh, in front of a uh, charter bus that with snow chains on the tires and this big placard that said Cree and a Midway Indian hockey tour. And so uh, my first question was, what on earth is that? <laughs> and, uh, and so um, we dug into it a little bit more and found that uh, it was this interesting story about Northeastern Ontario natives, uh, Crees and Ojibwe's, who had decided in 1928 that they would take a, uh, a trip southwards on a barnstorming tour. Now, barnstorming is, is done in baseball during this, this period quite a bit, but um, not so much in hockey, in part because, you know, booking ice in advance and the expense is, is much greater. So uh, we followed that tour. I think it was something like 16 or 18 games that they played over the course of two months uh, across the Canadian border into the northeastern United States uh, and then back again. And, of course, the question in our minds was, was why? What's behind all of this? And, 
And uh, here, here the, the real story, at the, just to cut to the chase, was that um, almost all of these uh, native hockey players were um, hunting and fishing guides in the summer and uh, fall months. And, uh, and what they were doing was going on a well-planned commercial junket to try to drum up hunters and fishers from places like Cleveland and Philadelphia and Boston uh, and New York as well as Toronto and other places in Canada to come northward. The highway had just been paved north into a place called Tomogamy near North Bay. And so uh, this was their way, a really kind of clever uh, hockey-based effort to try to uh, lure some southern cash northwards. Uh, For all we know, it worked quite well. The two brothers who organized it, the Friday brothers, had... uh, succeeded uh, commercially quite well throughout the 1930s and into the 40s. And so um, there was uh, some evidence that these these kind of commercial ideas uh, paid off. But the, the bigger symbolism of it was this whole notion of, uh, quote-unquote, Indians playing Indian and uh, and playing with race. And it brings us back to this question about hockey as being uh, both a vehicle for uh, reinforcing uh, the kind of racism of the time. But at the same time, for these folks anyway, it offered uh, an opportunity for them to be agents, that is to use hockey as a way for uh, to, to use race to their own ends, to reappropriate uh, uh, power in that regard. So, yeah, very interesting story. I... Um it makes me think of kind of the broader phenomena of this porous border between Canada and America, and especially in your third section on diverging worlds, it seemed like there was always a, a deep tension, um, both the, on the Canadian side and the American side of the border, each side afraid of, of one side gaining too much control over this thing called hockey, uh, Canadians afraid of Americanization and, and, and of the money that might be, uh, that might corrupt the game that would come from the South, but then the Americans afraid of the professionalism in the North and this creation of the firewall and the, and the NCAA. So I was wondering if you all could talk a little bit more about that aspect of the story, what's going on between Canada and the United States in the realm of hockey in these five decades? Well, um, let me mention the NCAA since, since you, you said the, the four letters, um, the four-letter word. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean suggest- to, to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> as we as we say in the book, um, in in the twenties, the NCAA was sort of the the rising group. The AAU was the pinata for journalists, and um, the AAU represented uh, corruption, if you will, uh, of amateurism for many of the muckraking journalists of the time. Uh, and the NCAA was was coming on. It was new, but it it was associated mostly with football. And as the NCAA members and the member institutions um, wanted their own piece of of the action and wanted a little bit more control of Olympic teams, especially which the AAU dominated, uh, they realized they needed to set up separate committees around different sports. They had football, uh, and so hockey was was one of the ones that they began to uh, develop their own set of rules around in the early uh, 1920s. And so how, how would they distinguish themselves? And that's where the firewall came in and, and their own approaches to offside. But more than anything else, the notion of violence and so uh, by, by the late 1920s, the NCAA uh, Rules Committee had, had clarified the firewall. Uh, that is to say, unlike the NHL and, and those leagues that the NHL essentially controlled, um, where the rules had gone from great... Uh, discretion in the hands of the referee as to how significant uh, a penalty was. They were clarifying, as were 
the NCAA members. But in terms of fighting, they went from referee's discretion of anything from a two-minute uh, penalty to expulsion, and they clarified it around a five-minute major, which meant, okay, the, the player sits out five minutes, but then comes back on the ice. The NCAA member, uh, members on the committee wanted to distinguish themselves from the pros, and so they very quickly made it a not only a five-minute major, but expulsion. So that player was gone. Uh, for the rest of the game, and eventually they added another game on top of that. And and the, the Europeans did the same thing. Uh, the international hockey associations did, did the same thing. So they they wanted a game in, it, in their minds that was more skill and speed and not the kind of, of violence and fighting that be, was beginning to define uh, the NHL brand. And so they they began to distinguish themselves along those lines. There's another episode that's uh, pretty interesting, which is called the, what we call it, the Canadian hockey player problem that uh, uh, again, emphasizes the border and it's uh, it's presence. It's kind of flexible utility. Uh, It begins, you know, in the 1950s when uh, hockey becomes uh, a, uh, a sport that more and more Northern American universities begin to take up. And of course, if they want to have competitive teams, where do they go immediately to get talent? And it's into to Canada and Canadian boys are at this time uh, only too happy to take scholarship money to go and get a good education in the United States and, and play hockey at the same time. But it creates for the course of about, uh, oh, almost three decades uh, this kind of tension between Canadian folks in the hockey community and Americans, uh, those uh, who are in junior hockey and midget hockey in Canada, uh, decry this uh, phenomenon again and again in the newspapers that you know American raiding parties are swiftly crossing into Canada during tournament time and offering up uh, scholarships to their boys from their communities the ones in whom parents have invested time and money and communities have invested time and attention and sweeping them off so that they'll play some of their very best, uh, most competitive days in some foreign rink uh, somewhere that uh, Canadians have never heard of. And on the other side, of course, uh, and this happens increasingly in the 60s, uh, is the complaint on the American side that here are these foreigners who are being recruited to come down to play in our rinks to play our game, to take away, in essence, uh, the scholarships that belong to uh, our boys. And so the border here is is seen as being problematic from both perspectives, from an American perspective and from Canadian perspective as well. Of course, it's only resolved in the 1970s when there's a change in NCAA rules about eligibility, but also, quite frankly, because by the 1970s, there had been such a significant growth in the amount of hockey playing in the United States, youth hockey in the United States, that the talent pool had risen to the level where uh, American university recruiters could now focus just as much on American boys uh, as they do on the, as they did on the Canadian boys. So interesting episode, and again, the border becomes this kind of focus, uh, a filter, if you will, for national anxieties on both sides of it. Quick uh, personal story on this, Keith. Uh, I played. I was playing college hockey in the late '60s at Bowdoin College, a small college in Maine. But it was a different world of hockey in those days, and we were playing a number of the the big universities, New Hampshire and Vermont, and and others that had quite a few Canadians. Uh, there were we did not have any Canadians, but uh, we decided we would we would do our part. Uh, to look Canadian. So in the team picture, my sophomore year, several of us took black tape and put it on our front teeth. So we would look Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's, (laughs) that's a pretty good one. The, the last section of your book is titled the rise of corporate hockey. This takes place after 1972. And it's the time when we really see the, the NHL come to dominate, become the predominant league. Um, 
around the world in terms of its quality. Uh, but we also see, again, this convergence. And, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about 1972, because of all the dates in the book, this one really ra- rang for me as, as um, making sense, you know, 1972. Yeah, it's... Um... It's an extraordinary year um, as we put it all together to see a number of these uh, events that affected uh, not just hockey, but other sports. So to start um, the NCAA Rules Committee, after, after lobbying by the NHL and Clarence Campbell, finally allowed checking all over the ice. And they had, had limited checking prior to that. Uh, so that when I was playing, you couldn't check uh, first in the uh, outside the defensive half, and then eventually check in the defensive two thirds. But the Canadian game had been checking all over the ice, and if you were a Canadian scout looking at American college players, for the most part, you'd say, "Well, they don't understand the, the real game, which is physical. It's checking," uh, and so. The NCAA opened up the checking, and the the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation, again responding to NHL pressure, had done the same thing in 1969. And so the games in U.S. college and then Europe began to be played more like the, the Canadian game with checking all over the ice. And it was a slow process, but there was a point of, of convergence. Uh, then in 72, the WHA, the World Hockey Association, was formed as a rival to the NHL. It was a, a period of rival professional leagues, such as the American Football League, the uh, the the World Basketball Association, um, all in an effort to get into markets that the established professional teams were not in. Uh, And the WHA, suddenly there's this whole cohort of, of teams that need players. And there aren't enough good seasoned Canadian players, so they go for some American collegians and equally important Europeans. And so now we see a change in the flow from a a league, the NHL, which was 99% Canadian, the doors begin to open and that the teams begin to draft and bring up players from U.S. colleges and and from Europe. And, And of course, that fosters the dreams of the players in, in those countries now to play in what more and more is, is the goal of all of them. Prior to 72, most players in the, in, uh, the U.S., uh, collegiate players, and most in Europe, I think it's fair to say, their dream was to play for their national team in the World Championships or the Olympics. But this changes. And at the same time, in, in 72, there's there's revolutions in communication. So, so the satellite, international satellite transmission of hockey games, big hockey games like another event, the Summit Series between the Soviet national team and the NHL All-Stars. That's on, that's, that's beamed, if you will, across the Atlantic live into Europe and the Soviet Union and down into the U.S. by other means. And so the, the dispersal of the NHL game and the showdown with Soviets who, by any stretch of the imagination, take the NHL's measure. So it's another another point of inspiration for for European teams that they can compete and and maybe even do better than than the Soviets uh, than the uh, NHL. And then there is finally, uh, in terms of women's hockey in the U.S. Uh, and Canada to some extent, uh, Title IX, which is a U.S. law, but that that that's a spur for the growth of of women's college athletics, including ice hockey, and that that brings opportunities for Canadian uh, players to come down and get a scholarship in the U.S. as their as their male counterparts had been doing, and now of course over time, you, it's hard to compete in American. 
uh, hockey at the top level, college hockey, without international, without without European players, both female and male. So all of that began to to spawn out of uh, 1972, and the corporate hockey uh, we we see at that point in time. Uh, 72 is is not necessarily the the moment for the corporate aspects of hockey to emerge, but but they become more more clarified. So what we call corporate hockey is is a is the control more and more controlled, if you will, an organization at the youth level by private groups as opposed to public or community groups. Um, more more uh, funding and and uh, involvement and oversight by corporate entities, not not hockey entities, but corporate entities outside the world of hockey looking to use uh, an affiliation for pay as a sponsor uh, for hockey for their product. And finally, in all cases, a more professional type of management involved in, in hockey. And the more Andy and I look at, at the situation now, uh, the more we're seeing more and more corporate hockey, and I think you could say the same thing for most sports. Certainly, in in this country, the same is true for soccer. It's a it's a corporate game at all levels now, and we're we're pretty sure, and we try to be clear that we're not saying it's a worse game or a better game. It's it's just very different, and from from the very earliest point, uh, players are on a, a clearer corporate conveyor belt, and most of them are looking to uh, to justify the amount of investment that their family has made by by landing a professional job down the road. Yeah, I think uh, what I would add to uh, what Steve has said about 1972, uh, just a couple of things. One, uh, once uh, the Title IX certainly was important in that it opened a door, uh, not that uh, hockey-playing women came charging through that door immediately, but it significantly opened a door that in due course, over the course of the next decade or so, we can begin to see significant um, strides that take place there. But for me, uh, one of the most important, if not the most important thing about 1972 involves a convergence on the ice. So what the summit series between Canada and the Soviet Union in September of 1972 meant for uh, the way the game was played, strategies, tactics, rhythm, etc. on the ice. Uh, just a little bit of uh, quick background uh, that uh, before 1972, Canadians had been long frustrated with the International Ice Hockey Federation uh, which insisted on uh, Olympic rules that said that uh, the players could only be amateurs, uh, had never signed any pro contracts, uh, and that even toward the end of the 1960s, where some pros could be reinstated, uh, it still insisted on this principal amateur rule. Well, uh, some historians have estimated that that meant that up to 800 of Canada's very best players were were then outlawed from playing international hockey because of these amateur rules. Uh, and Canadians couldn't see it. They just they wanted to have a situation where they, their best could play against the best of other uh, countries in the world. Uh, and after 1954, uh, when the Soviets burst onto the international stage and began to win championship after championship uh, and do very well, um, it became a, a, a sort of a sore point for Canadians. How are we going to reestablish our proper place, our presence in the world uh, when we're being handcuffed by these international amateur rules? And, you know, the real uh, uh, galling thing about it was that the Soviets were anything but amateur, that uh, those who played most of them anyway were playing for the, the Red Army team, which employed them as soldiers, and their principal job as soldiers was, of course, to play hockey. So in the late 1960s, the establishment then of uh, an exhibition series, not something that would count in international uh, rankings or anything, but an exhibition series could happen between the Soviet national team 
and uh, a team of Canadian pros. And of course, after some uh, negotiations that came around, the Canadians were so confident that when it did come to play, they were going to mop the floor with the Soviets. Canadians had been, up to this point in time, uh, sort of victims of uh, the same sort of hubris that had affected the Brits during the first Industrial Revolution. You know, this is, uh, uh, this is our game. Uh, we invented it, and uh, the way that we play it is the gold standard that shouldn't be challenged by anyone and couldn't be challenged by anyone. Well, it was. And boy, was it ever. In September of 1972, the Soviets came storming out and, uh, and schooled the Canadians in a way of playing the game that was very different from their traditional dump and chase, uh, hyper-physical, uh, move the puck to the front of the net, uh, try to knock uh, defenders over. Instead, it was much more of a rhythmic, uh, soccer-like game in which uh, space was used, numerical advantage, always looking for the open player pass first and uh, shoot only when uh, you've got an undeniable chance at a goal. So we know the answer. What happened at the end of September 72 is the Canadians won uh, the eight-game series, but they won it only by the skin of their teeth with 34 seconds left in game eight in Moscow. And it created a really interesting response, two responses in Canada uh, and in parts of the United States, uh, one response was, well, we won. And so uh, our way of playing the game is still superior. Our, uh, playing a physical dump and chase style game is uh, still supreme and we should support it. And uh, there was this kind of retrenchment that took place that helps to explain why hockey became so physical, increasingly hyper-physical over the course of the 1970s up until... 1987 or 88, when we begin to see a decline in, in uh, penalties and physical play. But on the other hand, in part because of the opening of the door of uh, leagues like the WHA, there was a more enlightened response that said, well, you know, we have a great deal to learn from the Soviets, not just in terms of physical conditioning, which was true, but also in terms of strategy, in terms of style, in terms of rhythm and playing the game and uh, and its approach. And so... We begin to see, as a result in 1972, uh, through coaches and through individual players, through uh, Canadians and Americans who go and play in increasing numbers in Europe, this kind of integration, this convergence of style, which by the 1990s, to be sure, is indistinguishable from the sort of hockey that's played uh, in Europe uh, and in other parts of the world this kind of common approach, which was the melding of, uh, of Soviet and Swedish and Czech and, of course, North American styles. Uh, 72 is important for that. It's, uh, uh, it's something I think we can point to to say that, you know, our approach to the game really changed after that point. The, the final chapter of your book really illustrates a kind of integrated, connected hockey world um, top to bottom, but also corporatized, commercialized hockey world. Um, as a final question about the book, and I'd like to ask you one more after that, but as a final question about the book, is this the future of hockey or is there another divergence coming? That's a million dollar question, Keith. Um, and uh, as we say, um, Historians aren't great prognosticators, um, and so we we suggest there'll be a little of both uh, on all fronts. Um, who knows when the next major event will occur that that causes a swing here or there? But but I think that certainly in the foreseeable future, there's going to be uh, more more convergence certainly on the ice uh, but off the ice there are the um, the, the KHL uh, is a rival to the NHL and our convergence is more NHL centric so will that have any effects um, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wager any money anywhere Keith <laughs> 
Andy, how about you? Uh, I see uh, a couple of things on the horizon. Um, I think uh, more uh, convergence uh, in terms of inclusion in the game is something that uh, uh, everybody seems to be well aware of, that uh, uh, there needs to be more and more people of color who are playing the game. There need to be more and more women playing the game and supported. Uh, there need to be non-traditional populations uh, encouraged to play the game in greater numbers. And I think there's uh, encouraging uh, uh, movements afoot on that front. The one problem, the biggest challenge I think that faces the game now is is really hard to characterize in terms of a convergence or divergence uh, model. And that is the challenge that uh, comes with the, what I would call the concussion problem. Uh, and it has to do with, you know, this, uh, the emphasis that has been placed on speed, that uh, in the past 20 years, there have been a great number of things done in terms of the rules to try to free up players, to keep them from being interfered with, uh, to make the game more exciting and to show the kind of athleticism that can be out there when uh, players of, of great intellect and great uh, 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 athletic intelligence, uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, great physical specimens can do. The result has been that uh, there's more collisions uh, and the, uh, uh, the consequences of those collisions have been great. So we've seen that come about in an increase in concussions and not concussions from what some people might think, like, uh, you know, an increase in fighting. Uh, fighting causes something like 10% of the concussions that have been recorded out there in competitive play. Uh, it comes from routine pl uh, play, so plays behind the net where uh, two players collide or at the blue line where uh, one team is trying to gain the blue line in order to uh, establish an attack and uh, elbows catch somebody else in the head, that sort of thing. Uh, what you do about that, I'm not sure. I know that uh, uh, the former uh, Montreal Canadiens Hall of Fame goaltender Ken Dryden and now a kind of general roving hockey philosopher has just written a fairly good book that suggests that, uh, that hockey should do with headshots what uh, the NFL and, and all football organizations have done with face masking. You just can't do it. doesn't matter whether you meant to or not. It's penalized and penalized heavily so that you create an awareness where, where people will uh, keep their elbows down or make sure that they don't make contact with anybody else's head. But uh, Having said that, uh, I think the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to speed. I can't see, I can't see players or fans or coaches or anybody attached with the game who would prefer to see a slower game by any means. And so, uh, you know, allowing rules that would to come back in that would allow for interference or hooking or that sort of thing to be looked uh, uh, without, uh, you know, penalized less. Uh, I don't see that we're going to happen that. So hockey is heading towards an important crossroads right now. And, um, and I wish I knew, uh, you know, what the answer is going to be as to what it's, you know, it's, it's a problem that's faced everywhere as well. It's not just in uh, the NHL. It's not just in North America. You find this, uh, this problem happening everywhere. And I'm just, I'm just not sure what the answer is going to be. And I think that part of the part of the reason is is that the that corporate hockey uh, at at all levels, starting at youth levels and academies, growing and and better and better training systems at, at, at of all types on the ice, off the ice, of junior teams, of of national development programs, all of those uh, are coming together to produce. Uh, more more players of a very high skill level, very high speed and skill. And I don't see anytime soon that anyone is going to increase the surface of the ice. So you have bigger, stronger, faster players out on the same ice surface. It's more collisions and, and F equals MA, uh, stronger collisions. And I don't have the answer to that either. Hmm. Well, on that uh, somewhat somber note, um, 
I guess the the last question I always like to ask is I like to give you all an opportunity to talk for a, a minute or two about any new projects you have coming up. So if you have any new projects um, that are, are whether they're sports related or not, this is an opportunity to talk about them. Well, I'm uh, Andy's got some wonderful historical stuff coming up. I've shifted. I'm I'm retired. I'm moving into a different direction here for writing. Writing's part of my life. But I finished the first of three novels that will look at at the, the, an arc of the history of ice hockey uh, as, as part of this arc from a, in the 1880s up to 2003, three novels uh, that center in large part on the hypocrisies of amateurism at different points in time but also a lot about uh, grief and honor and courage at different points in time and in American history, largely here. So uh, one is, I finished the one set in 2003 and now I'm working backward. And as historical novels, uh, that requires me to dig into the literature and primary sources. So that's fun. So that, that'll keep me busy. For me, um, I've been uh, asked by the Champlain Society in Toronto to prepare a book of documents, annotated and edited documents that trace the the arc of uh, hockey history in Canada. And uh, boy, oh boy, what a great pleasure that's been for the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, but a great challenge too, because as you can imagine, there's just so much out there that uh, that needs to be included. Uh, some stuff that's been in print in newspapers and in uh, other uh, publication forms, but also some great uh, manuscript letters as well and correspondence and uh, uh, diaries, uh, information that uh, hasn't seen the light of day yet, but that will through this publication by the Champlain Society. That's a manuscript that's due to them sometime this fall. Uh, and, uh, I'm uh, working diligently if they're listening to uh, to get that done. Oh, well, uh, I thank you both for joining me. This has been Keith Rathbone from Macquarie University with New Books in Sports, part of the New Books New Books Network. I've been speaking we've been speaking today with Stephen Hardy and Andrew Holman, the authors of Hockey: A Global History out with University of Illinois Press in 2018. If you love hockey, uh, you have to pick it up. If you're a sports uh, historian or someone interested in sports who wants an example of an excellent global history, uh, you got to pick it up. Or if you're just interested in sports and want to see a a work, which in my estimation is one of the best that looks at the way sports are played and how that helps shape the game locally, regionally, nationally, globally, Um, then pick it up too. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen and Andrew, for joining me today. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having us. Much appreciated. Really appreciate it.